Okay, I have to do the same. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Um, unfortunately, Pastor Caleb has the big C, so you're stuck with me this morning. Um, I hope that what we talk about this morning you will find as helpful as I have, though. Uh, somewhere in my spiritual sojourn, I picked this up, and uh, it was probably 30 years ago. And uh, it has stuck with me ever since. I still use it almost on a daily basis. And uh, I'll explain to you what that is in a moment. But before we do anything, let me pray for us. Father, it is a privilege beyond our understanding uh, that any one of us would be here this morning. Lord, it is a privilege that you have... Uh, in your goodness and in your sovereign will, chose to have done in our lives what has been done such that we would know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we uh, who know you can be called your children, that we are heirs to the throne. Lord, that we have access uh, and uh, filling of your Holy Spirit such that we may now think your thoughts and Lord, I pray that uh, now as we uh, consider what you have told us in your word, that you would, first of all, make it make sense to us. Uh, secondly, Lord, engraft it into us so that uh, our default mode uh, as Adamic descendants uh, is slowly pushed out. And uh, Lord, that it is replaced uh, with a default Holy Spirit. Lord, may we react to our circumstances, to our environment, to the people around us, to all the way that you would have us react in a way that is Christ-like. Lord, teach us now from your word. Equip us so that we may do so. And uh, we thank you again that we are here to hear from your word and to be changed by it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Now... This morning, what I'm here to do is to tell you that a healthy Christian is a fat Christian. Yay! Yay. <laughs> and all the fat guys in the congregation rejoiced. Yay. Okay. Unfortunately, I'm not talking to you about belly fat today. Uh, but... As the headmaster of Grace Christian Academy, I often have to hire teachers. Uh, I often have to place parents in volunteer positions, and I can't just put anybody there. As a pastor here now, one of the things that I'm going to have to do is participate in nominating and, and bringing in deacons and other elders and uh, full-time pastors, maybe, um, and who we saddle up with as missionaries and so on. And what we have to do, we, we can't just do these things. We have to be very careful. We have to be meticulously careful in how we go about doing that. And one of the things that I picked up along the way was kind of an assessment tool, kind of a screen that has helped me tremendously, not only in filling positions of leadership in ministry, but also uh, just in daily assessing my own life 
and asking myself, am I a fat Christian? I am a fat person <laughs> that's bad, uh, and that's got to go away. But I need to be a fat Christian, and this is what I mean by that, and we're going to spend the rest of our time together unfolding what that means. FAT is actually an acronym for Faithful, Available, Teachable. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about that. Let's look at faithful first. The term faithful simply means full of faith. Now, until we can really apply that, though, we need to understand what faith is. What does the Bible mean by that word faith? There's a lot of misunderstanding of it in our culture. There's a lot of misunderstanding of it even in the church today. Before we can understand what it is to be faithful, we must first develop a proper understanding of faith itself. And unfortunately, faith is something that tends to be universally misunderstood, even in the Christian community. First of all, biblical faith, which is what we'll be talking about, is not blind. We've got a, a culture that tells us that, and they look down on us because they accuse us of our faith being blind. It is not blind. Faith is not a belief that we exercise in something that may or may not be there. It is not what is often called blind. Instead, it is actually quite educated and substantiated. It is educated by God's word, and the more we know from the word about God, the easier it is to have faith and act on his word. In Hebrews 11, we're told that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen, and then proceeds to give examples of individuals who didn't follow God out of blindness, but followed him out of knowledge and understanding. They knew he was reliable and that he kept his promises. Because they knew God and the characteristics of God, they were assured of the things that he promised them. They weren't just rolling the dice and hoping that some invisible force in the universe would make good things happen. There was no, competent, or no component of chance at all. For them, God said it, and that settled it. They were assured of it, and it was conviction to them, to the point where they were able to act on it. Biblical faith is not blind. Biblical faith is, though, active. Faith is not just belief. It is belief that results in and is accompanied by trust, trust that manifests in action. It is more than belief or the simple acknowledgement that something exists. It is a belief in an object's existence and upon that object's reliability such that one takes action in such a way that it demands that object manifest its reliability. I believe that this chair down here exists. I believe a whole series of things about this chair. I believe that if I ran down there, I could sit on it and it would hold me. I believe that I could stand on it. I could probably jump up and down, which makes that a pretty strong chair. But I believe those things, that still is not faith. I do not exercise faith in that chair until I sit on it or stand on it. Thus, demonstrating that the object in which I believe exists and that it can actually carry out the duty that I'm counting on it to carry out. James makes this distinction between belief and faith when he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You say you believe in God? Big, fat, hairy deal. God believes, or the demons believe in God, and they shudder. They understand the consequences. Until we actually act on that faith, and what we're going to get, to get into is how do we act on that faith. But until we act on that faith, all we have is a belief that is empty. Biblical faith trusts in a reliable object. We are unfortunate to live during a time in which the only completely reliable object in the universe, which is God, has been replaced by faith itself as if faith was more like the force that we see in Star Wars, right? And what we do is we get caught up in this competition with each other to see who has more faith. You're better off competing with someone to see who's got the more effective God. Amen? Too many preachers are teaching that it is your degree of faith that moves mountains. That's not true. It is not your degree of faith, but rather the object of your faith that moves mountains. If it were your degree of faith, then faith the size of a mustard seed, which we are told is a good thing, would be worthless. And your implementation of faith would ebb and flow with the changing of your mood, anxiety level, proximity to your last praise and worship session, or the severity of trials you're going through at any given moment. Your faith and your experience of your faith fluctuates and it is unreliable. The object of your faith, however, does not, as long as that object is the God of the Bible. Many are faithful to money, to education, to their charisma and their talent, to their politicians or political party, none of which is reliable. To be faithful to any one of these things is idolatrous and is to be extremely foolish and headed for disappointment and disaster. One who is faithful is full of biblical faith. They regularly reject the false promises offered them by their flesh, the world, and the evil one for immediate and counterfeit gratification, and instead act on their trust in the Lord. One who trusts the Lord to provide in a conflict, for example, will be patient and kind. How counterculture is that? One who trusts the Lord with life's provisions will exercise integrity, tell the truth, and pursue treasures of heaven rather than of earth. One who trusts God with personal fulfillment will neglect their pride, ignore their ego, and allow the Lord to give them significance. So, biblical faith is not blind. It is active. It trusts in a reliable object. And finally, biblical faith produces character. The one who is faithful becomes perceived by others as reliable because of their personal commitment that is rooted in conviction. The one who is faithful contributes comfort and security to other believers who benefit from stability in an unstable world and who see a real-life example of God's faithfulness played out through a brother or sister. The one who is faithful is committed to personal purity, scriptural accuracy, the love of the brethren, and dedication to the church. You can count on it. The one who is faithful does whatever God commands because they recognize the fallibility of anything else that would compete for their affections. So, a healthy and might I even add happy Christian is one who is fat, who is faithful, and available. So what does available mean? Available simply means able to avail. 
makes himself or herself easy to find and access for the purposes of doing God's work. In Isaiah 6, 8, we see a wonderful example of the attitude of one who is available. Isaiah writes, And I, Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, that may seem somewhat profound, but it becomes magnitudinally more profound once we understand the context. Immediately preceding Isaiah's expression of availability here are these words. Now, this might seem like a lot of words, but understand what's going on here and ask yourself, what is being explained here? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, in those words, what we have is a glorious description of the throne room of God. The very next action is where God asks for volunteers to be sent, which immediately elicits a response from Isaiah of, I'll be that one who you can send. This is what this demonstrates. Because notice that he doesn't know what the mission is yet. So what's he agreeing to to be sent for? He has no idea yet. This demonstrates that his decision to be available is not based on the task, but it's based on the task giver. Let me read that one again because that's the central point to being available. This demonstrates that his decision to be available is not based on the task, but rather on the task giver. The proper attitude of someone who is available is... Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do regardless of what the task is, not because of what the task is, but because of who you are. Mark, 17, or Mark 1, 17 to 18, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And what did they do? The text says immediately they left their nets and followed him. This is another profound example of availability. If asked to leave my place of work and of income in response to a rather ambiguous promise, because what does fishers of men mean? I would at least say, hang on a second. Give me a couple days. i got to take some time to figure out what you mean by fishers of men. I've got to talk to my wife. i got to think about how I'm going to pay the bills. These guys didn't do that. Immediately, they dropped their livelihoods, their comfort zones, their friends, and who knows what else to become fishers of men. And again, what does that even mean? When called by God, though, the one who is available is available to the caller 
regardless of what they're being called to do. In contrast to these two accounts, though, we all know the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus told him to sell all he had, distribute it to the poor, and follow him. This man walks away sad because he had much. His priority was his stuff. He had other things in his life that kept him from being available to follow Christ. The one who's available can be regularly relied upon to tend to the things of God. The one who is available is is such because his passions for the growth of the kingdom have synchronized with Christ's passions and are thus his priority. The one who is available is such because his faith is in God's provision and he is therefore unchained to the trappings of this world. The one who is available, just like the one who is faithful, can and is regularly relied upon by others and views it as an honor rather than a burden. The one who is available is faithful first because he is able to trust God to provide for him as he leaves those other things that would otherwise be sources of comfort or dependency. Be aware, though, that one cannot be available unless one is also faithful. Without faith, one will never be able to walk away from the trinkets of this world in anticipation of greater rewards that have been promised by the Lord. So, a healthy Christian is faithful, is available, and is teachable. Teachable simply means able to be taught. I'm surrounded by people who are not able to be taught. While the common enemies of faithfulness are usually doubt and a lack of intimate knowledge of God, And the enemy to availability is often selfishness with one's time and resources. The enemy to to being teachable is usually pride and ego. This may be the hardest one to get past. Unteachability says you can't teach me anything new because I already know it. Or I'm smarter than you or I'm more educated than you or I've been around this block more times than you have or I'm more spiritual than you, etc. One who is not teachable frequently interrupts, ignores, and is critical of what others say. They have their own agenda or opinion and very little patience with healthy discussion or debate. Sermons are opportunities to be critical, condescending, and contentious rather than self-reflective, contemplative, and submissive. One of their favorite phrases is, yeah, I already know that. One who is teachable can be taught and is eager to be taught. In fact, they're able and willing to learn from anyone and anything. They acknowledge God's sovereignty in everything. So they understand that everything is a learning opportunity. For our current purposes, we're not talking about, though, the ability to be taught math. We can do that at a different time. Uh, Or how to play an instrument or how to learn any other kind of academic subject. What we're talking about when we talk about teachability right now, is the teachability that is relevant to Christian maturity. Ability to be taught in this category requires supernatural change. 1 Corinthians tells us that the natural person, that's the individual who has not repented of their sins and has not followed Christ, they have not been born again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Man's mind cannot grasp the things of the Spirit. 
we know from Scripture that left to our own devices and because of our Adamic nature, any enlightenment offered to us that is biblically accurate is going to be foolishness to us, again, if left to our own devices. Therefore, to even begin learning things of eternal value, we must first humbly submit to the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So now let's look at that term, fear. It is important here to make the distinction between fearing the Lord and being scared of the Lord. They're not the same thing. At school, my students need to, in a healthy way, fear me. In the sense that they know that if they comply with my rules, they will be protected and they will benefit. They they will fare well. This fear results from a healthy understanding of who they are in relation to who I am, and it works this way at home as well with my own children. They know I will live, kill, and die for them, but they also know that their duty is to submit to my rules or else face dire consequences. This fear involves understanding the power structure, but also involves an understanding of benefits such as loving protection and provision. This is different than being scared of. An intruder at my school is not afforded a healthy fear of me because my position of power does not protect, provide, or extend love to them. They need to be scared of me because my position of power has no obligation to provide or protect, but rather to stop and even obliterate them if necessary. Fear of the Lord acknowledges the power structure that my next breath is dependent on God's sustaining grace, that he has established the laws by which creation functions, and that my submission to those laws afford me a life that is best synchronized with the creator's design. If I live rightly, I benefit from living the way God designed me to live, and it's a good thing. If I live wrongly, I face miserable consequences that God, through teaching me, is helping me to avoid. The teachable person is made teachable by God's transforming spirit, no longer sees things of the spirit as foolishness, and now is even eager to be taught more because it brings pleasure to the spirit that now resides in that redeemed soul. Those moments when you hear a line from a sermon and it elicits a a convicted amen from you, that's not coming out of your Adamic nature. That is the Holy Spirit who now resides in you, who is pleased that he has heard his own truth. One who is teachable is humble in thought. Once I recognize that my nature is one of great depravity, and it is, of spiritual deficiency, and of dependence on the sovereign Lord, I become better at not thinking too highly of my own intellect and become more aware of God's sovereign use of anything he wishes to use to grow my knowledge and understanding. He may use a very learned senior pastor to teach me. He may do that. But he may also use a non-believer, even someone who is militantly opposed to the gospel. He may use someone who is extremely mentally challenged or emotionally disturbed. He may even use an insect. Are we not to consider the ant? The teachable person sees possible learning in all circumstances from all people and all things because they acknowledge God's sovereign implementation of all of his creation for the benefit of his people and the pleasure of his goodwill. 
no learning situation should be rejected by us. One who is teachable seeks to hear more and to speak less. What is it that Vody says? If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. <laughs> One who is teachable seeks to hear more and to speak less. This may be the most counterculture thing that I have to say all morning. They recognize their fallible nature and are thus readily open to correction. We too often resist receiving correction or corrective information because our pride is opposed to even the possibility that we may be flawed. That comes from a misunderstanding of who we are in Adam. James tells us in chapter 1 of his epistle, Know this, my beloved brethren, brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. God's word, according to this portion of the text, is to be implanted. That literally means, according to the Greek term, uh, to be engrafted. It becomes a natural part of my being and thinking. Left to my own devices, there are certain tactics that I, as a descendant of Adam, as a sinner, use in order to survive. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we murder, we do all these things that the Bible says that we do. Because those are natural, we don't even have to think through them, we don't even have to plan them. Prior to salvation and sanctification, what comes naturally is handling conflict violently, pursuing personal gratification lustfully and gluttonously, satisfying personal agendas selfishly and manipulatively. That came naturally without much need to even plan it. That was simply default mode as a fallen human being. But once God's word is implanted, it is now engrafted. It becomes the natural default. Having God's word implanted, it has become a natural part of my new being. It has become not just something I have to reference as an alternative way of going through life, but rather the new default. Now, initially, when introduced to new elements of growth, I may have to stop and think about, okay, this is what I learned in Bible study last night, how to handle this. But as you progress through life and you're sanctified and the Holy Spirit is changing you, eventually you don't even have to think about that anymore. It becomes natural to function the way the Lord would have you function. With God's word engrafted in me, repulsive conviction now accompanies violence, lust, gluttony, selfishness, and manipulation. Rather, joy comes from synchronizing my thinking and actions with God's word. For it to be there, though, I must be taught it. In order for me to be taught it, I must receive it with meekness, as James says. How many times does somebody start to tell us something and we go, I already know that. I have had to make the decision in my own mind to never say that. Never say, yeah, I got that. Somebody told me yesterday. Just in letting the person who's telling me uh, feel that they have impacted and that they've ministered to me. I just need to keep my mouth shut, you know, and say, that's good advice. That's brilliant. Now, here's the million-dollar question. 
can a believer have one and not the others? Because naturally, because of our uh, natural talents and because of our spiritual gifting, we may be more skilled in one than we are in the other. So, can a believer have one and not the others? The answer is kind of yes, but absolutely no. Yes, but only artificially. Someone may appear to be faithful, but rarely show up to ministry events. Someone may show up to everything, but still be on the same level of spiritual maturity that they were 20 years ago. One may be full of head knowledge as it pertains to Scripture, but not manifest what they know in their actions. If one is authentically faithful, they will be obedient to God's call to be available to do his work in the lives of his people. If one is authentically available, they are so because they have listened to and learned God's call to minister. If one is teachable, they will have humbly submitted to God's instruction to faithful living and service to others. So, you might be able to fake some of it for a while, but one cannot authentically be one without the others. They are a package deal. It's non-negotiable. Are you and am I, because everything I'm telling you right now, I, I'm telling myself, are we fat Christians? Are you faithful, committed to trusting the Lord in the presence of others as well as in private? Let me read that one again. Are you faithful, committed to trusting the Lord in the presence of others as well as in private? Are we faithful on stage as well as in the closet? Are you available, willing to place the needs of the kingdom above your own pleasures and conveniences on a regular basis? Can't do this flawlessly. We got to earn a living. We have relatives that we got to take care of. You can't go to everything, but many of us can go to much more than we do. Are you teachable, eager to grow in understanding and knowledge of the things of the Lord and humble to receive it? Can I receive correction? Can I receive rebuke? If I cannot, I have a misunderstanding of who I am and I'm under the impression that I'm flawless. May that never be. My prayer and my hope for me and for you is that we all use what we have considered here for our own sanctification as well as for protecting the church universal in how we determine its leadership. Thank you. Uh, you probably never heard anybody say, I hope you're fat. <laughs> but I hope you're fat. Um, and I hope you get fatter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no problem, right? So in order to do that, though, I'm going to pray now that God would be the Lord of our fatness and that he would indeed uh, make us fatter than we are. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes any of this possible in our lives. Lord, you know our hearts, our minds, our Adamic nature fights so hard against this. Lord, please clear all that junk out of the way. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Invade our hearts, invade our minds so that we may think with the mind of Christ Lord, help us to grow in our faithfulness, 
Help us to grow in our availability. Help us to grow in our teachability. And Lord, will you please use that growth, use that fatness for the sake of spreading the gospel and expanding your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, uh, for today. And we ask that um, as we go out and we celebrate our our mothers today, uh, that we would also not forget about what we've learned from your word today and that that would be part of our discussions uh, as we leave here today. Lord, we thank you for taking care of us and providing for us. And we thank you for all those things and the one who's made it possible through Jesus Christ. Amen.